This is part four of our series, uh, A Heart After God. And uh, I want to uh, begin with a statement this morning. Uh, and that statement simply says this, people who have a heart after God have this one thing in common. People who have a heart after God, men and women who have a heart after God have this one thing in common, and we'll be looking at that. But there is a clarity of, of purpose, a passionate pursuit of this one thing, and we're going to unpack that this morning. But first, um, some of you may know of the name Kurt Cobain, uh, the lead guitarist, was the lead guitarist, uh, musician, uh, founder of the group, uh, famous group Nirvana. Uh, when he was 18 years old, back in 1985, he founded the, the group Nirvana, was very popular, sold 50 million records worldwide. Uh, with that money, fame, fortune, all of that stuff came, plus the pursuit of many unrestrained pleasures. Uh, he ended up, as so many others who came before him, talented, gifted people, people like Jim Jim Morrison, uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Jim Bellucci, Janis Joplin, you know, uh, ending their lives in, in addictions and ending their lives in, in just tragedy. Uh, the band Nirvana was labeled as the, the flagship of Generation X. Uh, in other words, the band uh, of Generation X. And Cobain was, was referred to or, or given the title of the spokesman for his generation. He died at the age of 27, only nine years of this success, fame, and, and, and fortune. On April 8th, 1994, Cobain was found dead in his, satellite, in his Seattle home, uh, the apparent uh, victim of a suicide, one gunshot to his head. High concentration of heroin and traces of diazepam were found in his body. The coroner estimates that he had been dead for at least three days before his body was discovered. These are some of his last words. I don't have the passion anymore, and so remember it's better to burn out than to fade out. I don't have the passion anymore, therefore it's better to burn out than to fade out. Cobain was the victim of his own misplaced passion. One of the things that he had in common with the other celebrities that I had mentioned a few minutes ago was this deadly pursuit of passion and pleasure that became deadly. His last words, his mantra, better to burn out than to fade away. On the other hand, Wilson Bentley. Wilson Bentley uh, was born on a farm in Vermont. Uh, while most people go indoors during a snowstorm, not Wilson. He went outdoors. He loved snowflakes. In fact, his nickname was, was Snowflake Bentley. Uh, he, would, he would try to capture snowflakes on, on black velvet and then try to sketch them, but realize that they faded away too quickly and they were too, much too intricate to, to even be able to draw. So he came up with this idea of photographing snowflakes under a microscope. The first photographic snowflake from a microscope happened on January 15th, 1885, right? I was just a little kid at the time. Under the microscope, he said, I have found snowflakes were miracles of beauty. 
It seemed a shame that this beauty would go unappreciated. Every crystal, he says, was a masterpiece of design, and not one design was ever repeated. He spent the next 50 years of his life in the pursuit of capturing images of snowflakes. He amassed over 5,000 photographs of snowflakes, and, and ironically, Wilson caught pneumonia and died because he was walking in a snowstorm. Now, what are these two have in common? Nothing, really. They're, they're like polar opposites. But both men pursuing pleasure. One man pursuing deadly pleasures. The other pursuing what was seemingly an innocent pleasure. One man pursuing deadly pleasures. The other man pursuing a seemingly harmless obsession. But you know, there's got to be more to life than either extreme. Both men really ended up in the same place. I want you to think about it. I've used this illustration before. One guy is mauled by a bear. He's killed, you know, just ripped apart in pieces. The other man is asleep in his bed and is bitten by a poisonous spider, and he dies in his sleep, which is more dead. Both arrive at the same place, though they get there differently. 40 years ago, uh, or a little about that 40 years ago, I decided to walk away from a life of pursuing deadly pleasures. Actually, it was grace that found me. Grace redeemed me. Grace brought me by the hand of the Savior to the Father's house and said, you don't have to live a life that is either burned out or fade away. There's something better for you than that. But neither do I want to, listen, neither do I want to spend my life on pursuing beauty that is at best momentary or fading away. There is something greater than that. I don't want to, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees are in the way. I don't want to miss the creator because the creation is in the way. I would rather spend my life on the one thing, the one thing that beauty this kind of beauty never fades away. It, it lasts forever and forever. See, what's at stake for all of us this morning is this. It's making the fatal flaw of choosing the wrong passion. Everyone has a passion. You know, Doug spoke a little while ago. Some people's passion is baseball, you know. But everybody has a passion. But the fatal flaw is to make the mistake of choosing the wrong passion passion. Choosing the wrong passion can be deadly. You end up in the same place. There are those who are pursuing illicit pleasures. Many of them, millions of them, who are pursuing illicit deadly pleasures and ending up in the wrong place. But there are just as many people who are, who are pursuing legitimate pleasures, pleasures that are good. But the problem is, is that they make it the ultimate thing that becomes the ultimate thing of their life. Or let me put it this way the, way, the way that Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, put it. He said this. He says, the human heart takes good things like successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. The great deception of idols is that we are prone to think that idols are only bad things, but evil is far more subtle than this. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. 
See, what Keller is, is, is saying is this, that, that what's at stake is because there is such a deception at work in the human heart to become obsessed even over good things, things that have value in themselves, but they become the ultimate thing. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So let's take a look this morning at somebody who, who had it all together. Somebody who's called by God in Scripture, a man after my own heart, David. Psalm of David, Psalm 27, is what we're going to look at a few verses in this great and powerful psalm. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. You know, look at the things that he just mentions. War and evil men trying to devour my flesh. I mean, no wonder... David said, many are the afflictions, many are the troubles, many are the difficulties, many are the trials of the righteous, you know? In the, in the, in the midst of, of this, you know, it kind of reminds me of that old song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. And David has seen his, his, his share of troubles way beyond uh, most. But the one thing I love about him is that he is undaunted, fearless, and even confident in the midst of all of the, these real life-threatening situations. He says, if, if evil is to be symbolized by darkness, then it's okay because God is, is my light. If, if, if evil is trying to destroy me, it's okay because the Lord is my stronghold. He is my strength. But this is what makes this psalm so amazing, is that it's in the midst of this in the midst of all of this trouble, in the midst of all of this complication that's taking place in his life, circumstances that are obviously oppressive, that David says, I'm obsessed with one thing, the one thing that I desire, the one thing that I'm going to seek after more than anything else. And, and this is what he comes to in verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. This is, this is the language of a man who has a heart after God. This is the language of somebody who has made God his magnificent obsession. This is the language of, of, of someone who understands what the true value of life really is. And so he says in verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, that is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now, remember, David's a poet. David is, 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 is a songwriter. And, and it's taking him because of the complexity. He's, he's revealing the one thing in several phrases. But I want you to see what that one thing is. It is to gaze, to muse. It is to contemplate. It is to meditate upon the beauty, the splendor, and the majesty of God. See, if we drop down to verse 8, he says this, my heart says of you, my heart. In other words, 
He is speaking to himself. On many occasions, David spoke to his own soul. Here is his heart speaking to his consciousness, to his mind. My heart said of you, of you, God, seek his face. And here's the response that came back from his heart. Your face, Lord, will I seek. He's listening to himself. And and it says he's having this conversation with with himself. And he's saying, my heart, the, the beat of my heart is to seek the face of God. And my heart is saying, your face, O oh God, will I seek. I want you to, I want you to think about this. In, in the scripture, the Hebrew word for face is presence. Uh, if I spoke to you face to face, then I am speaking to you in your presence. And so as a, as a result of this, what David is saying is that the, the beat of my heart, the, the desire of my heart, the longing of my heart is to be in God's presence. What makes this such a great psalm is that it's in the midst of conflict. When enemies are seeking to devour you, David, David, when, when they want to destroy you, when armies are, are wars breaking out all around you, this, this is what you have your mind on? I mean, you know, David, it would be okay to, you know, to, to ask for relief, to ask for peace, to ask for vacation, you know, go down to Florida for a couple of weeks, you know. But this is what is so amazing about this psalm is because when all hell is breaking loose against him, David wants mostly God. I want you, God. I want to behold your beauty. I want to see your splendor and your majesty. Here is what makes David to be somebody that we should emulate because he's the man after God's own heart, and this is what the man after God's own heart looks like. He is undistracted. He is single-minded in his pursuit of the beauty and person of God. He is undistracted. I mean, I love that single-mindedness, that focus that he places. You see, David has made gazing at the beauty of God his ultimate thing. That's the ultimate thing in his life. When the object of your affection becomes God as the ultimate thing of your life, you have tapped into that which is not only beautiful, but that which is life itself. Because in his presence, his fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is eternal life, Jesus said, John 17, 3, that you might know him, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. It's to know experientially, not to know about. It's not information. It's not theology, although theology helps us to, to know the character of God or the, or the attributes of God. But it's to know God experientially, to know him in the personal communication of heart to heart, face to face. It's what we were created for. It's, it's, it's what the Westminster Catechism says is the number one priority. Why was man created is the question. Man was created to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Piper and Jonathan Edwards have tweeted that statement by saying that the purpose of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, by by delighting in him, by, by finding pleasure in God, finding time to gaze and to meditate and to muse and to contemplate on the beauty of God as the one thing 
when all hell is breaking loose. This is why this is so unimaginable. If your life is falling apart, when all hell is breaking loose. But this is precisely the time that our soul and our heart should say to seek God's face. Because, listen, fixing our hearts on God is far and away the most rational thing that we can do when we find ourselves in the midst of trouble, the way David has spoken here. See, nothing separates people who have an interest in God from those who really have a heart after God than what happens when you find yourself in the midst of trouble. David's constant and undistracted ambition to see and enjoy and savor the, the pleasure of God distinguishes him. He says, he says your, your love to me is better than life. It's better than comfort. It's better than relief from all of my problems. Your love is better than life. David fixed his focus and his heart to see the beauty and the indescribable splendor of the uncreated God. You should think about that. It says in Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently, they'll find me. If there is a diligent pursuit of God, not only will you discover that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, but the end of seeking God is God himself. You can't imagine, we, we can't imagine the pleasure and the beauty and the, and the majesty. Could you imagine just for a, for a minute what it's going to be like the day that we see Jesus face to face? In all of his splendor, when he comes to be admired, the Bible says, in his saints. When, when, when we just behold him, when we, when we, like John, are touched by Jesus. I mean, there's going to be a day when we are going to be in his presence without restrictions, without, without any necessity any longer of walking by faith instead of walking by sight. We will be walking by vision. We will see him as he is. And that day is going to be glorious. One commentator said David's identity wasn't wrapped up in his calling as king. He didn't wake up every day with a political agenda of trying to expand his kingdom or, or extend his, his authority. What David was saying here is that, that, that the pursuit of David's heart was to, was to get away from the, from the unimportant things, the irrelevant things, the, the, the mundane things, and to spend time in the presence of God, to behold God, to discover his character, to, to, to read to read about his, his nature, his works. You know, for, for us, we, we've got so many tools and so many, uh, so, so many tools at our disposal to, to learn of the nature of God. So many great things have been written about the character of God, the, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. Uh, to discover him, to wait and to meditate upon him. You say to me, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not practical. This is not realistic. Enemies are making war against me. People want to devour me and kill me. And you're telling me that, that musing and meditating upon God is the most rational thing that we could do? Yeah, because, listen, because, because the greatest amount of peace comes to those whose mind is stayed upon the Lord because they're trusting in him. This is the common sense of faith that says, that says 
that in my pursuit of God, not only will, will, will I, I get God, but, but in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pledges forevermore. Look at verse 4 with me one more time. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he says in verse 5, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and he will set me high upon a rock. It's going to work out. It's going to be okay, David says. I was uh, walking uh, one day last week on uh, Vets Highway. Uh, I like to walk against the traffic because I want to see if there's a car coming at me. I can jump out of the way. And, and when I'm on a prayer walk, you know, I don't close my eyes. I'm, I'm walking and praying. And, 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 and I happen to notice that there's a consistency that when, when drivers are driving down the road and they see an object, somebody like myself walking down the street, what I notice is that some of them who are distracted take their eyes and, 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 and they kind of look at you while, while they're driving, while you're walking. And, and it's like unconscious, I hope it's unconscious, that they kind of steer toward the object of what they're looking at, you know? And hopefully, you know, I won't get hit, you know? But, but, but I've noticed this, and this is so true, that, that we travel in the direction of what our eyes are fixed on. So I want to ask you this question. What have you fixed the eyes of your heart on? What is the object of your affection? What, what has become the one thing in your life? What is the ultimate thing in your life? You see, I don't want any of us to make the fatal flaw of allowing even good things, career, love, possessions, even ministry, to turn into the ultimate thing. That would be the ultimate tragedy, to make any of those things the ultimate thing. I shared the story once before. In 1851, from uh, Liverpool, uh, England, to South America, a missionary by the name of Alan Gardner left, left everything behind. Listen, in the 1800s, when you, when you traveled thousands of miles on mission, you know, I mean, you, you literally left friends, family, you left everything behind. T- today, you know, missionaries have global cell phones, uh, Facebook, you know, Skyping, you know, the internet, you know. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't dangerous places in the world today. There, there, there are, and there's some places that all those things are not. But the world was a whole lot bigger, and the whole world is a whole lot smaller today because of technology. And, and just the world was a whole lot different then in, 18, in the 1850s. But his ship never made it. His ship sank, and, and while they that were on the ship were able to make it to this kind of really harsh island, the, 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 the island was, was, was sparse. Uh, the, the men were, were literally, uh, those that were saved, they were literally dying of, of hunger and thirst. And I don't know from any experience, of course, but they say that to die from thirst is probably one of the worst ways in which to die. Well, a ship finally made it to that island, a rescue ship coming from the Falkland Islands finally made it, but it was too late. Everybody had died, including, including Mr. Gardner. But he left a journal behind, and he had been studying the Psalms. And one of the Psalms that he was, one of the last Psalms that he wrote about 
was Psalm 34, verse, verse 10, I believe it is. The, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall lack for no good thing. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall lack for no good thing. But then the last thing he wrote in his journal, and I wanted to share that with you, he, just, he wrote this. I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. Here is a man who is dying of thirst, one of the most painful ways to die, said, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. He, he had made God the ultimate one thing in his life. He was drinking from, from the fountain of life. And when you drink from the fountain of life, even though outwardly you are perishing, inwardly you're being renewed day by day. His ambition was God. It always was God. And he wasn't disappointed. Here's what I want you to take away from this message this morning is that you can spend your life on temporary and fading beauty or you could spend your life on the one whose beauty will endure forever. At the beginning of this message, I shared this statement that people who have a heart after God have this one thing in common. And David said, this one thing have I desired that I will seek after. People who have a heart after God become focused, purposeful in that one thing. And you know, David's not the only one who had that one passion of his life. We can look at several others, but very, very briefly this morning, Paul. Think about, think about the apostle Paul for a minute. This is what he wrote in Philippians 3 verse 13. But this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What was the cry of his heart? I want to know you, Jesus, in the power of your resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. That was the cry of his heart. I want to know you. This man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament had a hunger for more of God. Give me more. And he said, I count all things as loss. I suffer the loss of all things in exchange for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In fact, he says, I count it all as, as garbage by comparison for, for the excellency of the knowledge of him. But you know, Paul wasn't the only one who had one thing, who made that one thing the ultimate thing in his life. And I love this about this lady. Her name is Mary. Mary is the sister of Lazarus and, and Martha. You know the story. On this on this occasion, in fact, the, the three times that the gospel talks about Mary, you know where Mary's found? She's at the feet of Jesus. Each time she finds herself at the feet of Jesus. On this particular occasion, uh, Martha's really upset with her. And I think, I think Martha's even a little upset with Jesus because she interrupts Jesus. Where, where is Mary? She's sitting, listening 
like a, like a sponge. She's absorbing every word that's coming out of the mouth of Jesus, right? And she's just sitting there and listening, and, and, they're, in, and they're in their house in Bethany, and, and Martha's busy, and she's making, you know, supper and dinner or lunch, whatever it is, for everybody. She's busy about serving, and she comes in, and I, I think probably just the first thing that came into her mind, you know, just, just kind of came out of her mouth, you know? You know those people, mm, not me, you know? They just say whatever's on their mind, you know? And, and, and she just, she interrupts Jesus and she says, will you tell my sister to help me? She's left me to do all the serving by myself. And I, I love what Jesus, how he responds. He says, listen to this. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset, distracted about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, you got to know this about Jesus. Whenever he used that double expression of a person's name, Mary, Mary, Simon, Simon, you know, it was always, it was always a sign of affection. So here Jesus is affectionately correcting and rebuking, but gently rebuking Martha because she's distracted. She's worried about so much stuff. Listen, could you imagine having, having a window of time with Jesus, but being so preoccupied by serving Jesus that you miss spending time with Jesus? And I got to tell you, one of the greatest pitfalls of the ministry is what I've just mentioned right there. It is spending all of your energy and all of your strength on serving Jesus, but forgetting that the most important thing that Jesus calls us to is to spend time with him. It says that he called unto him 12 disciples, that they might be with him, number one, and number two, that they might preach the gospel. Before we can go out and serve the world, we've got to spend time with him every day. You know, there's, there's something besides this one thing that each of these scriptures says, she chose that one thing. Paul had this one thing I do. David had his, his one thing. But they also had a couple of other things in common. They had an understanding of the value of the beauty of the one that they were serving. And I think that, I think that Mary demonstrates that in one of the next times that we see Mary in, in the scriptures. She comes and she takes her most valued possession, what, what was probably being stored up and saved for her wedding, or at least for her marriage, or for perhaps the, the, the endowment of, of her wedding. It was costly. It was, it was perfume, the value of which was, they estimated to be about that of a man's salary for an entire year. And she takes the complete contents of it and she pours it out upon the feet of Jesus and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair in this act of devotion and love. So some people were, like Judas, upset because of this extravagant waste that was being made. But to her, listen, nothing was too costly. Nothing was too expensive to be poured out, to be wasted upon the one who was the object of her love and affection. Can I tell you that each of them 
had this same thing in common. David, if you read about David in the end of his life, he had amassed such a great deal of wealth and all was devoted and dedicated for the building of the temple. Solomon was the one to build it, but David was the one who financed it. He, he was the one who came up with this extravagant gift. Paul, in the same way, Paul, Paul gave, gave God the, the greatest, the most extravagant gift that he could give. He gave his life. He said, my life is ready to be poured out like a drink offering. You see, when, when, when we have him as the ultimate thing, as the the object of our affection, then, then there is nothing, not even our lives, like Alan Gardner, was too costly to give to the one who gave himself for us. I pray this morning that somehow this would like become infectious, that we could see these people who, who, who are admired in Scripture. And in fact, Jesus said let her alone because wherever the gospel is preached, it will be spoken of her as a memorial because of what she's done. Well, what's he saying by that? To puff up this woman? No, but to say, look at her act. Look at her devotion. Look at her single-minded, undistracted love for me. That's what really is important. That's the only thing that really is important. Now, there are other things in our life that are important, but it's okay when they become secondary. It's okay when, when they don't take the, the ultimate thing away from what should be the ultimate thing, and that's setting a heart on God. How good is the one who loves us? You know, think about those snowflakes. I, I was thinking about that, you know. I mean, how, how many snowflakes makes a snowstorm? You know, a foot of snow. Can anybody calculate that? I don't think anybody can calculate that. But God's, the, God's the, the one who can not only know the number, but he's the one who designed the snowflakes. But I don't want to be enamored by the creation. I want to be enamored by the creator. Don't you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that there is a, a man, a woman, a psalmist, an apostle, a worshiper who had a heart after God, whose desire it was to make you the ultimate thing. And I, I pray that having read these stories of these individuals today and over the last several weeks, that that it will spark in us a passion. It will, it will create in us a, a flame. That's all we need this morning, Lord, is as a spark to ignite the flame and the passion of our heart. When we see you in the greatness of your beauty and glory, we will desire more of you. Let that be the cry of our heart. Let that be the cry of this house. And all the expressions at the green room and at collision and living word, let the cry of our hearts be that we are making you, God, the great passion of our hearts, the object of our affection, our magnificent obsession. And we all sit together. Amen. Let's all stand together.